0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story from 2004 called Adams
1: by George Saunders. All day that look was in my mind, that look of hate. And I thought, if that was me, if I had that hate level, what would I do?
0: Adams was chosen by Joshua Ferris, author of the novel Then We Came to the End. Two of his stories have appeared in The New Yorker, and one of them, The Dinner Party, was nominated for a National Magazine Award last year. Hi, Josh. Hi. So George Saunders has published about uh, 18 stories, well, not about, exactly 18 stories in the magazine since 1992. When we first talked about it, you mentioned wanting to do a story of his called "Comcom" from 2005, which was great, but too long for this purpose. What was it about Adams that made you choose it
1: next? Uh, I think that it's a deceptively complex story and that there's a lot of things that are going on in a short amount of time.
0: How did you first start reading George? Did you find him in the magazine or somewhere else? No,
1: I found him at a Barnes & Noble after, (laughs) I don't know what exactly prompted it, but some incredibly glowing review that that made it clear that this guy was was really writing wonderful fiction. And I picked up Civil War Land and Bad Decline and knew right away, that he was an original voice because I didn't want to read him. He was far too infectious and far too novel. And I wanted to get away from that because I knew that sooner or later I'd be writing really bad George Saunders ripoffs.
0: So you were already writing at the time?
1: I was writing at the time, yeah. And working at Barnes & Noble, yeah. You were working I there? was working there, yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I so think I actually, got a discount on his first book. It
0: exposed you to good literature. It did, yeah,
1: it did. I mean, you know, it had, it's hard not to when you um, when you're surrounded by so many books.
0: How long did you work there?
1: I think about six months. I was told at some point in time that I didn't have the best customer relations. So (laughs) they they asked that I either improve my customer relations or leave. And I did, in fact, improve my customer relations. But then I left.
0: I can imagine George writing a good story set in Barnes & Noble. This one is not set in Barnes & Noble. And it involves pedophilia, paranoia, domestic abuse. It sounds like it's going to be really grim. What would you tell listeners who don't know George Saunders and his work before they hear this story?
1: Well, prepare yourself for something incredibly new, unlike anything you've ever heard before.
0: All right. We'll talk more after the story. Now, here's Joshua Ferris reading Adams by George Saunders.
1: I never could stomach Adams. And then one day he's standing in my kitchen in his underwear, facing in the direction of my kid's room. So I walk him in the back of the head and down he goes. When he stands up, I wonk him again, and down he goes. Then I roll him down the stairs into the early spring muck, and I'm like, if you ever again, I swear to God, I don't even know what to say, you miserable fuck. Karen got home. I pulled her aside. Upshot was, keep the doors locked, and if he's home, the kids stay inside. But after dinner, I got to thinking. Guy comes in in his shorts, and I'm sitting here taking this? This is love? Love for my kids? Because what if? What if we slip up? What if a kid gets out or he gets in? No, 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 I was thinking, not acceptable. So I went over and said, where is he? To which Lynn said, upstairs, why? Up I went and he was standing at the mirror, still in his goddamn underwear, only now he had on a shirt and I wonked him again as he was turning. "'Down he went and tried to crab out of the room, but I put a foot on his back. "'If you ever,' I said, "'if you ever again. "'Now we're even,' he said. "'I came in your house, and you came in mine. "'Only I had pants on,' I said, and Minnie wonked him in the back of his head. "'I am what I am,' he said. "'Well, that took the cake, him admitting it. "'So I wonked him again as Lynn came in, saying, "'Hey, Roger, hey!' Roger being me, and then he rises up, which killed me, him rising up against me, and I'm about to wonk him again, but she pushes in there, like intervening, so to wonk him again, I had to like shove her back, and unfortunately she slipped, and down she went, and she's sort of lying there, skirt hiked up, and he's mad, mad at me, him in his underwear facing my kid's room, and he's mad at me? Many a night I've heard assorted wonks and baps from Adams' house, with her gasping, Frank, Jesus, I am a woman, you're hurting me, the kids are watching, and so on, because that's the kind of guy he is. So I walked him again, and when she crawled at me, going, please, please, I had to push her back down, not in a mean way, but in a, like, stay there way, which is when, of course, just my luck, the kids came running in. These Adams kids, I should say, are little thespians constantly doing musicals in the backyard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they're, you know, all dramatic. Mommy, Daddy. And, okay, that was unfortunate, so I tried to leave, but they were standing there in the doorway blocking me like... Duh, we do not know which way to turn. We are stunned. So I shoved my way out, not rough, very gentle. I felt for them, having on more than one occasion heard Adams wailing on them too. But one did go down, just on one knee, and I helped her up, and she tried to bite me. She did not seem to know what was what, and it hurt and made me mad. So I went over to Adams, who was just getting up, and gave him this like proxy wonk on top of his head in exchange for the biting keep your damn, I said, keep your goddamn kids from, then I needed some air. So I walked around the block, but still it wasn't sitting right. Because now it begins, you know? Adam's over there all pissed off, saying false things about me to those kids, which, due to what they had seen, the wonking, and what they had not seen, him in his underwear facing my kid's room, they were probably swallowing every mistruth. And I was like, great. Now they hate me, like I'm the bad guy in all this, and all summer it's going to be pranks, my hose slit and syrup in my gas tank, or all of a sudden our dog has a burn mark on her belly. So I type up these like handbills saying... Just so you know, your dad was standing naked in my kitchen facing my kids' room. And I tape one inside their screen door so they'll be sure and see it when they go to softball later. Then I stuff like nine in their mailbox and on the rest I cross out your dad and put in Frank Adams and distribute them in mailboxes around the block. All night, it's call after call from the neighbors saying, you know, call the cops. Adams needs help. He's a goof. I've always hated him. Maybe a few of us should go over there. Let us work with you on this. Do not lose your cool. That sort of thing, which was all well and good. But then I go out for a smoke around midnight. And what is he looking at? All hateful? Their houses? Don't kid yourself. He is looking at my house with that smoldering look. And I am like, what are you looking at? I am what I am, he says. You fuck, I say, and rush over to him, but he runs inside. And as far as cops, my feeling was, what am I supposed to do? Wait until he's back in my house, then call the cops and hope he stays facing my kid's room in his shorts until they arrive? No, sorry, that is not my way. The next day, my little guy Brian is standing at the back door with his kite, and I like reach over and pop the door shut, going, nope. Nope, you know very well why not, champ. So there's my poor kid, kite in lap all afternoon, watching some dumb art guy on PBS saying, shading is one way we make depth. How about trying it relevant to this stump here? Then Monday morning, I see Adams walking toward his car, and again he gives me that smoldering look. Never have I received such a hateful look, and flips me the bird as if he is the one who is right. So I rush over to wonk him, only he gets in the car and pulls away. All day that look was in my mind, that look of hate. And I thought, if that was me, if I had that hate level, what would I do? Well, one thing I would do is hold it in and hold it in, and then one night it would overflow, and I would sneak into the house of my enemy and stab him and his family in their sleep. Or shoot them. I would. You would have to. It is human nature. I am not blaming anybody. I thought I have to be cautious and protect my family or their blood will be on my hands. So I came home early and went over to Adams's house when I knew nobody was home and gathered up his rifle from the basement and their steak knives and also the butter knives, which could be sharpened, and also their knife sharpener and also two-letter openers and a heavy paperweight, which if I was him and had lost all my guns and knives, I would definitely use to bash in the head of my enemy in his sleep as well as the heads of his family. That night, I slept better until I woke in a sweat, asking myself what I would do if someone came in and, after shoving down my wife and one of my kids, stole my guns and knives and knife sharpener as well as my paperweight. And I answered myself, what I would do is look around my house in a frenzy for something else dangerous, such as paint, such as thinner, such as household chemicals, and then either wring the house of my enemy with the toxics and set them on fire or pour some into the pool of my enemy, which would, one, rot the liner, and two, sicken the children of my enemy when they went swimming. Then I looked in on my sleeping kids, and oh my God, nowhere are there kids as sweet as my kids. And standing there in my pajamas, thinking of Adam standing there in his underwear, then imagining my kids choking and vomiting as they struggled to get out of the pool, I thought, no, no way, I am not living like this. So entering through a window I had forced earlier that afternoon, I gathered up all the household chemicals, and believe me, he had a lot, more than I did, more than he needed, thinner, paint, lye, gas, solvents, etc. I got it all in like nine hefty bags and was just starting up the stairs with the first bag. When here comes the whole damn family, falling upon me, even his kids, whipping me with coat hangers and hitting me with sharp-edged books and spraying hairspray in my eyes, the dog also nipping at me and rolling down the stairs of their basement, I thought, they are trying to kill me. Hitting my head on the concrete floor, I saw stars and thought, no, really, they are going to kill me. And if they kill me, no more little Melanie and me eating from the same popcorn bowl." No more little Brian doing that wrinkled brow thing we do back and forth when one of us makes a bad joke. Never again Karen and me lying side by side afterward, looking out the window, discussing our future plans as those yellow-beaked birds come and go on the power line. And I struggled to my feet, thinking, forget how I got here. I am here. I must get out of here. I have to live. And I began to wonk and wonk, and once they had fallen back, with Adams and his teenage boy huddled over the littlest one, who had unfortunately flown relatively far due to a bit of a kick I had given her, I took out my lighter and fired up the bag, the bag of toxics, and made for the light at the top of the stairs, where I knew the door was, and the night was, and my freedom, and my home."
0: That was Joshua Ferris reading Adams by George Saunders. The story is collected in his book In Persuasion Nation, published in paperback by Riverhead. So Adams was first published in The New Yorker in August of 2004, which was when we were about a year and a half into the Iraq War and uh, about eight months after Saddam Hussein had been captured. And back then, George wrote quite a few very direct political satires about the war, most of which ran in our Shouts and Murmurs section, not in fiction. This wasn't one of them. But one way that people have read this story is as an allegory of the war with Roger as George Bush. And, you know, people point out that if you take the last letter of Adams and move it to the beginning, you have a different name. And Mm -hmm. do you think that that reading makes sense?
1: I think that you have to read this story in that light after the second time you read it. The way that the psychology moves in the story, where you go from a perceived threat to a response— and then to anger and paranoia and ultimately to preemptive action. I, I wouldn't say it's a one-for-one one analogy, but it is, is such a perfectly distilled psychological concentration of what the war was about that it's hard to avoid that interpretation.
0: Of course, Roger does find some chemical weapons.
1: He does. He's more, he's <laughs> more in fortunate. The yeah. He's a little bit more. He's got better luck.
0: Do you think it matters if you read it and don't think of it in that light?
1: I I don't think so. I mean, the story is so good in so many other ways. The characterizations are funny. The lines are funny. You have Saunders' typical fun with language. It's a very daring story. And the fact that it goes where it goes is so surprising that it works first and foremost as a story. And it has to work as a story for there to be any justification for the allegory.
0: If you see it as a kind of fable, what what's the moral of the story? What is he saying about violence?
1: Well, first of all, he's basically giving us just a prescription for how this kind <laughs> for escalation. of... escalation. Yeah, yeah. For, for how this kind of escalation happens. And he's doing it in a setting that is very familiar to us. It feels like the suburbs, everyone has kids. So it's a familiar setting that disguises the way in which violence on a large scale happens. But you know, other than just sort of describing how the process takes place i think there's a very obvious condemnation of the way in which roger acts roger sort of reminds me of the narrator of uh, the cask of amontillado where I, I i won't be able to quote the the line exactly but it's something like actually i did write it down so maybe I could,
0: <laughs> you can quote it
1: oh uh, i can quote it let's see where it is the thousand injuries of fortunato i had borne as best i could but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. That's all you know about this guy, that he, you know, he just insulted the main character, and the next thing you know, the, the narrator has him you know, being imprisoned within a wall of freshly laid bricks. It's the same with Adams. I mean, you, you, you know at the very beginning of this story that Adams has done something unseemly and potentially extremely wrong. It's interesting the way that it's phrased in the story. It's not in my kid's room, but facing in the facing direction <laughs> of my kid's room. And then when Roger goes over to Adams' house, Adams is still in his underwear. So maybe maybe it's just sort of like Adams' way. Yeah. Of course, it's not. It's implied that there's a real genuine threat there and a threat that sort of cuts closest to the bone. But at a certain point, you know, we have this kind of fluctuation between our sympathies with Adams and our sympathy with the narrator. But at a certain point, Adams just goes way too far.
0: There could be an innocent explanation for Adams being there, sleepwalking, something. Yeah. yeah. But um, you already know that there has been tension between them. Right. He's never liked Adams. Right. And then Adams does seem to be sort of ambiguous later. He doesn't respond like an innocent man.
1: No, he doesn't, right? That's exactly right. And that's an interesting moment, too, because then you're like, well, I can't trust Adams any more than Roger can.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, we can't trust anyone in this story. I know that Saunders was interviewed about this story one time, and the interviewer asked him, you know, why there weren't any likable characters in it. And his response was to say, he says, I guess the idea is that there's one sane consciousness, the authorial one, the one that created and is controlling the first-person narrator, and that's where we might look for likability. So do you feel that? Do you feel that the author is also a character in this story and that that's who we like when we read this?
1: I think we like the voice that's telling us the story.
0: A voice which is above and beyond Roger's voice.
1: Yeah, it gets tricky, obviously, because, you know, Roger being the narrator, it's hard to sort of then separate out another entity called the narrator. But it is obviously a highly constructed story. You've got the fragmented dialogue, and if you're familiar with Saunders' work, some of it sounds similar to voices that he's adopted in the past as well so you do feel as if there is a very conscientious authority that's guiding you through and letting you know very clearly that despite what might be described as unlikable characters this is a situation very much in control by a master of the of the form
0: now saunders writes a lot about violence and grotesque things and he in person i know you've met him is probably the sweetest person you've ever known. He's he's peace-loving. He's a Buddhist. How do you reconcile those two things?
1: Well, he's he's clearly faking us all out. You know, <laughs> He's got lots of skeletons in the closet. I, he's a great dad. He's too. a great husband. Yeah, something's What's going, going on something's here? going on. The man's living three <laughs> lives. I don't know how to explain the disparity. I mean, there's a great discrepancy between his... You, right when you meet him, you know that he's a, a rare person. He just sort of shines through with um, amiability and goodness and and he's very warm, so it actually increases the remarkable achievements that he does on the page because you know, it's, it's pure imagination.
0: What's interesting is that not only does he write about characters who commit acts of violence or just bizarreness, he gets us to care about them. And there's something that he gets us to see, which is the haplessness of people, the haplessness of, of our culture and of people who do commit these acts. So in a way, I, I feel as though he identifies with the sort of, not underclass, but these these underdogs he writes about who respond in sort of stupid ways sometimes to what yeah, life throws at them.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of stupidity. And, and yet for every unit of stupidity, there's a unit of empathy that accompanies it. Even in the stories in which he has really mean and irredeemable characters, he will find a way to tell the reader that this too is a human being who has suffered and ails in some way or another. And you can't help but go, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, he's such a jerk, but I'm going to give him a little bit of my sympathy. And that creates the great moral ambiguity of his stories. They're not only entirely ambiguous at times, but the characters within them contain multitudes.
0: You said something earlier about um, how he adopts voices and the sort of playfulness with the language. I mean, he has this style in which hes it's oral storytelling. You know, the character says, so I wonk him on the back of the head and down he goes. You know, this isn't a written sentence. It's a spoken right. sentence. And um, I think perhaps one way he gets us to care is simply by giving us very direct voices. We can't stand outside and say the man goes here and he does that and we don't like that. We, we actually become that man. We're wonking this guy in the back of the head. And that may be a way that he sort of battles our resistance or breaks us down.
1: Yeah, he's put you right there. I mean, this yeah. this is a story that would be very difficult to tell, both in a third-person narrative and also without his decision to euphemize certain words like wonk and bap. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, it, if if it got any closer to the violence of what is really going on, we would be very far away from Roger and his defense of his children would become a little less understandable.
0: So if you had to put Saunders in sort of a lineage of of writers, what would you say? I mean, I think of Jonathan Swift of course and more recently Donald Barthelme, mm-hmm. sort of people playing with satire through language. Is there anyone else who comes to your mind?
1: I think that he also has quite a lot in common with Kafka and with a kind of absurd notions that taken to a certain extreme which he's never afraid to go to reveal an insight into you know human interaction that has been veiled in one way or another i think that kafka is at his most humanistic in the metamorphosis and that at the end of the metamorphosis as gregor is dying there's a lot of saunders in that heart
0: Oh, you said you were you were scared to read him at first because you didn't want to end up writing like him your most recent story for us the valetudinarian has a very kind of zany slapstick feel to it do you feel like you've maybe absorbed any of saunders humor
1: i i, I plead the copying. fifth <laughs> i plead the fifth you know underneath all of the the slapstick and the humor that saunders gives us i think he's a deeply serious writer and a deeply moral writer i hope to convey some of that at, at times probably not necessarily in the valetudinarian it's more fun <laughs> than it is anything but uh, he's a multifaceted writer that's very easy on the surface to pin down, but incredibly difficult once you actually read him with any depth. And um, it's that complexity that I would like to share with him in common more than anything. Well, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Joshua Ferris's novel, Then We Came to the End, was published by Little Brown in 2007. His second novel, The Unnamed, will be published in 2010. George Saunders is the author of Civil Warland in Bad Decline, *Pastoralia*, and In Persuasion Nation, and the winner of a MacArthur grant. His most recent book, the essay collection The Braindead Megaphone, was published by Riverhead. Subscribers can read all of George Saunders' stories published in The New Yorker online for free at newyorker.com. And everyone can listen to the fiction podcast featuring George Saunders reading and talking about a story by Isaac Babel, as well as dozens of previous programs. You'll find them all on our website, NewYorker.com, and in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treesman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead.
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.